Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. The show that gets you inside access to how some of retail real estate's most successful leaders went from your average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. Hey everyone, before we get started, I wanted to take a quick second to thank the guys at CM for making this podcast happen. They've brought Limitless from an idea to making it a reality, and I can't thank them enough for support along the way. If you're looking to get going on your own content creation journey or need help with your marketing, I'd strongly encourage you to reach out to them at kazcm.com. It's widely known that having success in commercial real estate takes chutzpah, an old Yiddish term describing someone with self-confidence. The term is often used to describe those whose confidence is ideal, not cocky, and can work a room with the best of them. My unsolicited two cents? It's impossible to have too much chutzpah. This show is based around the idea that we can leverage my network of incredible people in the commercial real estate industry to get inside access to their success stories. Of all the people that I've ever met, which is well into the thousands in this business, I can't think of one with more chutzpah than David Burnbury. That chutzpah, his work ethic, and playing to his personal strengths has been an instrumental part in TSCG, which is formally known as the Shopping Center Group and their wild success. We get into the history of commissions, his first failed career path prior to real estate, and what it takes to stand out. I don't need to say it, but I think you guys are going to love this one. David, thank you for joining Limitless. I know I speak for our entire audience. Super excited to have you. So thanks for joining us. You are totally welcome. It's my pleasure. Perfect. So tell me, before we get into you becoming the co-CEO and chairman of the Shopping Center Group, which we all know if anybody who's listening to the show is in retail real estate or has even heard of retail real estate, they think of your organization pretty quickly. But before you got to this incredible point in your career, tell us about your background. Where are you from? How did you grow up? What was your family life like? I'm actually really proud of my family. I was born and raised in Atlanta. Yesterday was my birthday. I'm 63 years old. Happy birthday. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate it. It was great. I happened to be, I happened to stay home like a lot of people. So I was born in in a, Fairly middle, middle upper class family. I don't know. Back at the time, we thought we were rich. We were probably poor, but maybe we were a middle class family. My mother was a journalist. She's from Birmingham, Alabama originally. She was the feature editor of the Birmingham News at one time. She passed away a long time ago, but was a really unique and uh, special person. My father is a true miniseries. He escaped Germany. He was born in Dortmund, Germany. He escaped in uh, 1938 as a 14-year-old. He came over to the United States on what was called the uh, Kinder Transport, which is a very famous way that children got out before the war with uh, little or no notice. So he came over to the United States. His parents and his entire family were killed in Germany, unfortunately. He joined the army and was in the 30th Infantry Division in World War II, which is one of the divisions, it's commonly known as the Band of Brothers from the show, but it's one of the divisions that saw the most action in the European theater. He was in D-Day, he was in the Battle of the Bulge, he was in lots of the biggest battles in World War II, and he liberated a concentration camp. Which concentration camp was it? He actually liberated a railroad train of inmates leaving a concentration camp, going to another place, but liberated it. So he, was, he is a escapee, 
a war hero and a liberator, which you don't have too many of those. He started an accounting firm in 1946 when he uh, came to the United States, came back and settled in the United States. And I was brought up in a family with uh, three siblings, total of four siblings, including me. Uh, good people, and we're, we're all real close friends, and we're in close contact. I'm still in close contact with my dad. I see him about every other day. He's 96 years old, and he's a, um, as I mentioned, he's a miniseries. I'm blown away by your dad's background. I'm sure you get this reaction anytime you ever tell his story. I mean, that's unbelievable. I don't know if you know this about me, but my grandparents actually were Holocaust survivors. Met, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so that really resonates with me, right? Because not only was he able to escape, but he clearly had a lot of energy toward resolving the problem and participated and accomplished an incredible amount, it sounds like, in his military career too. Wow. I'm like the chill bumpster, like coming off my arms, just thinking about how. I'm well, one of the interesting, is. one of the interesting things about my dad is he decided to talk about it. It took him a long time, but it took him probably until the mid '70s, and then he became a very vocal speaker, very active speaker. And in the Georgia school system, almost every curriculum involves him speaking to the schools. And what he decided to do was become an expert at speaking to people that were his age when he left Germany. So typically sixth and seventh graders, maybe let's say sixth to eighth graders, speaks throughout the uh, state of Georgia, speaks on military bases, and is a really well-known spokesperson about the war and about the Holocaust. Clearly where you get your presentation skills from. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. The rest of my life, I mean, the rest of my upbringing was just a normal upbringing of playing sports in the streets and getting into trouble. I went to University of Georgia, graduated from uh, University of Georgia. I know that's not a good thing for you, but graduated (laughs) from University of Georgia with a journalism degree. Okay. So I was actually a news editorial major. And we know where we got that inspiration from, from mom, obviously. From mom. And I did something a little unusual in my senior year of college. I took my winter quarter off and it was 1978, 78 or 79, 79. And it was right after Animal House had come out. And just like they do in Hollywood, when something is popular in Hollywood, everybody is real quick to jump on it and try to copy it and try to come up with different concepts. So as you know, Animal House was a movie about a fraternity on a Midwestern campus. I think it was Midwestern. So a movie studio, American International Pictures, that was one of the largest studios in the country at the time, this goes way before your time, but some of your listeners may remember the Gidget movies and the Beach Blanket Bingo movies and things like that. They were into that and they were also into horror films, but they were one of the big studios. They came to Athens, Georgia to recruit for the movie and they were going to shoot a movie that was about a summer camp. And the movie, as opposed to it being a fraternity, this was about the waiters at a summer camp. And on a really, really drunk night at my fraternity house, by the way, the movie was about a Jewish summer camp and Jewish waiters. So they went to the Jewish fraternity at uh, University of Georgia, which I was a member of, A5. A5, okay. Yep. And they came and they did a casting call. And a bunch of us on a drunk night came out there and auditioned. And several of us, including me, got the part. So I had a part in this movie. You would call me somewhere between an extra and a principal. And when I say somewhere between an extra and a principal, I would call it 
a, at the time, the rule was that if I was talking, someone else had to be talking also because I was not a member of the Screen Actors Guild when I did this. But I can say that I made a decent amount of money, quit school, went on location to shoot the movie. And I was actually on location for about two months shooting this movie. At one time, it was voted either worst movie of all time or top five worst movies of all time because it was actually a piece of crap. That's quite the accomplishment. It was, <laughs> I'm real proud of it. But I can tell you that in the movie, Dennis Quaid, Roseanne Arquette, Fran Drescher, who was the nanny, yeah, who were a lot of big stars in the movie that I became friends with. So that was winter quarter. I came back to spring quarter, and I decided that I was going to be an actor without any skills whatsoever. Dude, I'm sure your immigrant father and hard and put himself out his life on the line. I was thrilled to learn that you were going to be leaving school to become an actor with no, uh, and your well-accomplished journalism mother probably just love that strategy. Tell us about that. Well, if you could see a scene like in Fiddler on the Roof when they tear their clothes and weep and uh, basically mourn for the loss of their child, that was kind of what it was like when I decided I was going to move to Los Angeles, especially because I had absolutely no money. And when I say I had no money, I had no money. I had no friend or no acquaintance in Los Angeles. I had no car and I had no place to live. So they thought, like a lot of things in my life, that it was another well-researched decision that I made and somehow or another allowed me to do it. My brother had a friend in LA that allowed me to sleep on his floor. And I slept on his floor for a couple of weeks in Manhattan Beach, which was an amazing place to be. And got a job in Westwood, California, which is basically the UCLA campus. I got a job as a waiter in a restaurant called Whaler's Catch. And like a lot of people, my story was that I told everybody that I kept turning down major motion picture parts while I was waiting for my big break as a waiter. So I was a waiter. And at one time, I also had a job on my day off where I was selling paper clips in return giving people free trips to Las Vegas. In other words, I was in a phone calling room. They used to call them call centers. And you basically called and tried to get people to go out to Vegas hotels. And somehow or another, the hook was paper clips for your office. I have no idea what that was all about. So, How long did this go on for? I have so many questions about this job. How long did this go on for? Well, the interesting thing is, you know, it's like comedy. Everything is about timing. And if you look back to 19... 79, 1980, almost to the day that I got to LA and bought myself a used Fiat, eventually moved into an apartment called Don't Park Here. That was the name. That was the sign out front. Yep. And got my job at the restaurant about the same time there was an actor strike. So literally, it was almost like opening a restaurant right on the day that they decided that they're going to have a virus called COVID. So they literally stopped making movies, stopped making TV shows, and I was going to be an actor in Los Angeles. So you're, how far in, in your education were you at Georgia? You said you dropped out. So you were halfway through? I mean, were you junior? Or I had five hours of credit left. I mean, you talk about parents. I can't imagine disappointing parents more than I probably disappointed my parents. Not only am I moving to LA to be an actor when I have no acting skills, connections, or any understanding of the industry, right. not only did I have no money, but I was five hours short of graduating. With a degree okay. in journalism from a good school. 
with a degree in journalism from a good school. So I will skip to the chase and tell you that I graduated in 1982, okay, three years later, yeah. by correspondence course. And I can also tell you that I graduated with the lowest grade point average you can graduate with and graduate. So wow. in other words, if, if I didn't get a C on my correspondence course, I would not have graduated. All right. So let's pause there for a second. I want to, and I hate jumping around, but I do think it's important. It's okay. You are one of four kids. Yes. Where do, you, where do you rank in that as far as age goes? We certainly oh, know I'm the best as far as uh, how much your parents appreciated decisions in the late teens, early 20s. But where were you in the age range? So my oldest sister got a, I think she got a master's degree from Washington University in St. Louis, graduated with honors. She started an occupational therapy department at a hospital. Oh, wow. My next one, my brother graduated, I think, again with honors at University of Georgia with an accounting degree and became, and he is the principal of one of the largest public accounting firms in Atlanta. Then there's me, the loser. Yep. And then there's my youngest sister who graduated with honors and went to and was actually at the uh, National Endowment of the Arts in Washington, D.C., directed the Corcoran Institute, was a major advertising exec. So you can imagine how proud my parents were of me. Right, I'm sure. And I'm probably throwing a, a big meatball to you that you can hit out of the park, but were you mischievous as a kid? Or I mean, did you get in trouble at all? Or tell me what you were like as a kid. Did you play sports? I know you said you did on the streets a little bit, so... Wanted to just kind of hear what you were like because it sounds like you were an okay student, maybe. No, <laughs> no, I really, I really, there's no way you could describe me as an okay student. If I studied like really, really, really hard and put a little bit more effort, I could maybe one day become an okay student. I set my goals really, really low and I didn't achieve them. I literally was not a good student, and I don't think I was mischievous. I actually ran for office and was president of my class and did things like that. But I really didn't get into a lot of trouble, probably till college, and college is when you're supposed to get in trouble. Right. And then also to put this into perspective too, your dad started an accounting firm in Atlanta in 1946. So he's how old at that time, roughly? I have to do the math. He would have been 34. Okay, so he's an entrepreneur then. I mean, this is not... Let me think. <laughs> Let me do the math. 20... No, no, no. I'm sorry. He was probably like 24, 25 or so. Yeah. yeah. Between the two of us, we might become an okay student one day. Right. <laughs> I'm learning more and more that you and I had a lot in common. So, so he was married to your mom at that point? How did they meet? No, he was not married to my mom. They got married in like 1951, I think. Okay. So your mom finds this aggressive, well-accomplished entrepreneur who's got this accounting firm and they fall in love quickly. How did she end up in Atlanta, by the way? She was in Birmingham. My father was in a youth group. She was in a youth group. They had a dance, they met, and they got married. Got it. The rest is history. And then she moved to Atlanta okay, to I just, be married. I, I always like getting the family background because oftentimes it'll add up. And it's quickly adding up to me because there's a few things about you that have checking off some major boxes of what's made you really successful in commercial real estate. One, you were a bad student. Two, you were an actor, which means you have... And in all seriousness, you had great presentation skills. And also, you know, you got to fake it till you make it a little bit. And then you obviously had the background of being in the basically the phone room, which is critical to succeeding in brokerage, as we all know. So anyway, continue on with your background a little bit. So we're in the early 80s. You're living in LA. You're doing what you need to do to get by. And actor strike happens, and then what happens? Well, I absolutely hated LA. I really did. 
And today, L.A. is one of my favorite cities. But I hated L.A. because I was broke. And there are some cities that you can't live in if you don't have money. And I literally had no money. When I tell you that I had an apartment called Don't Park Here, it was an apartment called Don't Park Here. I took my kids to it a few years ago, maybe about 10 years ago. The name of the apartment complex was actually called Don't Park Here. Well, that was the sign in front of the building. So I figured that was the name. And I mean, it had all the options. It had a place where eventually I could put a bathroom in the kitchen. And it was a real piece of crap. And it was in a, I wouldn't call it a dangerous neighborhood. I would call it a really, really, really cheap, horrible apartment in a pretty good neighborhood because it was in at the base of Laurel Canyon in the Valley, which is a real nice place. It's Studio City, but it was a really, really cheap apartment. That's a good way to buy real estate. I mean, it's... Oh, no question. I like it. Okay. And so so what happened was really, I got tired of living with no money there. So I didn't have enough money to create a social life. And one of the other things about Los Angeles is it's so spread out for the people that are listening that understand Los Angeles. There are cities like New York and DC and places like that that are easy to meet people. They're easy to meet people because there's large concentrations of people in one place. In Los Angeles, it's so spread out. And I was really living in the suburbs that I found it difficult to meet people and I couldn't afford to do anything once I could meet them. So I wanted to move back and I moved back. To Atlanta. Yes. And at that particular time, there wasn't a big pool for acting careers in Atlanta. So what did you do? I had all the boxes checked in terms of being a good prospect for employment. I was a college dropout. Mm -hmm. I graduated with the lowest uh, GPA you could possibly graduate with and still graduate. Mm -hmm. Or I had one. I was heading towards graduation. (laughs) I had no skill and I wasn't going to be a journalist. So there were a lot of people coming after me, as you can imagine. So I mentioned that my dad was an accountant. My dad had an account with a uh, one of his clients was a real estate brokerage company. And it was an industrial-focused brokerage company. And the guy agreed to take me on. At the time, he was about 69 or 70 years old. And it was what you would call today flex space that we were doing. At the time, when you were hired by someone, you weren't paid. They gave you a phone, a desk, a pen. And in most cases back then, you weren't trained either. Literally, they gave you a phone book and told you to start calling, or they they knew you had a car and said, start driving. And that's the way we learned real estate. What was the Um, name of that firm? IJ Kaplan and Company. Got it. So what happens there? How long were you there? Did you have some success? So I was there. I, I think I had success. I mean, I would call, you know, success is a relative thing. I felt like I developed a decent understanding of the industrial market, but after about three years, I started venturing into retail and started. I started being attracted. Actually, my first deal in real estate was, if you've ever heard of a head shop, a head shop is a, is a store that back then they sold all kinds of pot paraphernalia and bongs. Mm-hmm. And they actually sold illegal equipment to smoke illegal things in, which I thought was an interesting business model. So I leased a kiosk to a head shop. And it was, I think it was 375 square feet. I think the rent was something like $750 a month. Mm-hmm. I forgot exactly what the rent was. Maybe it was $75 a month. That's what it was. It was $75 yeah, a month. I'm thinking, I'm thinking 75 yeah. bucks for that more. Yeah. And we got, at the time we were paid first month's rent 
and 5% of every month thereafter. And I went to a bar that night and I had a couple of beers with my brother and I was telling him how incredibly successful I was because we were, I was on a 50-50 split and our commission, the initial commission was $75. And I told him not only did I make, just make $37.50, but I'm going to get 5% of that every month for the rest of my life. And I thought I was as cool as it got. Right. I really did. Yeah, you were, we were yeah, you were a tycoon at that point. So at that point, I was Zell, Sam Zell. So we we went out and celebrated my good fortune. So as that being the commission process, that was across the board. Every single broker got paid first month's rent and five percent of every month thereafter. Every single broker was on a 50-50 split with the house. And you created a book of these five percents. And, you know, I make light of the first one, but but subsequent to that, we had some pretty big hits. And getting 5% every month became a pretty substantial thing and created recurring revenue, which is what every broker lived for. Let me ask you a philosophical question that's a little off topic, but I have to ask you because my brain's churning with this 5% ongoing. Do you think a structure like that would be beneficial for brokers in today's environment more so than getting paid the whole fee up front? You see brokers all the time who spend more than they have or they lose out on because they lose and they may lose out on second halves. And people talk and brokers, especially getting into the business, often talk about how they don't know where their next paycheck's coming and it's a very real thing. What, I'm not saying that those are the right numbers to use. I don't I'd have to run them, but what do you think of that idea philosophically? Obviously it went away for a reason, but you've been on both sides of it. So I'm curious to get your thoughts. Well, I'll tell you, I'll give you a yes and a no, and I'll tell you the reason why it went away. Philosophically, and this is the point where all of your brokers will probably turn this podcast off. Philosophically, I think it's the absolute best way to be paid because it's got, you've got the proverbial skin in the game. And what it does is it basically rewards you for the success that you bring the landlord. So to the degree that the tenant stays and remains a tenant in the landlord space, you get paid. And you get paid the longer they stay because it's every renewal, it's every option. It it continues as long as they're an occupant and in the property. So in my opinion, to the, the better tenant that you brought the landlord, the more value that you brought to the asset, the more you make money. And you, like I said, you've got the proverbial skin in the game. That makes it, in my opinion, the best way to do it. What happened was prior to, I don't know, I'm gonna say mid 80s. Landlords held on to property. We weren't in a flipping type of environment. Flipping properties is a fairly new thing. Families owned in in almost every major city in the United States, there is a family that owned or started a major grocery chain. They built shopping centers around them. They owned the real estate and they kept it in the family for years and for decades and generations. When that stopped, not only the landlord, but the broker wanted to end the program of being paid over the term. And the reason why the landlord wanted to end it because he wanted to sell property without the encumbrance of having ongoing liabilities. So if you wanted to put your property on the market, you didn't want to say, here's my property, here's the rent. But you also have this list of brokers that you have to continue to pay. They wanted to call it quits and say, you owe nothing to brokers. We're handing you this property. It's your property with no ongoing liability. So that was on the landlord side. On the broker side, the broker didn't want to be in bed with a new person. They developed a relationship with the old landlord. They understood him. They trusted him. They had 
seasoned accounts that were being paid numerous years. And then all of a sudden, somebody from California comes in and owns a shopping center in Atlanta that they don't know from Adam. And in a lot of cases, it became a problem. So that was really the cash out commission. And there's one other thing on the cash out commission today, and I'm sorry to bore you, but the interesting thing is cash out commissions ended up, I mean, started as more or less a bet. And it was a bet against an ongoing commission. So as I mentioned, if you're paid first month's rent and 5% of the rent as it's paid over the term of the lease and any renewals and options, then the longer the tenant stays, you win as a broker. A cash-out commission was originally designed as a discounted cash-out commission because it's paid in advance. Mm -hmm. So the discount was based on the time value of money and on the current value of money versus being paid over time. I think both parties kind of changed the rules and it just became the norm and then it became a negotiated item. But if you look at first month's rent and 5% over the term, the 4% that had become kind of the norm became the discounted, cashed out in advance commission in return for not having to wait. And in return, the landlord didn't have to pay it on renewals and options. Not only will our listeners get to hear the story, (laughs) your story, we're getting a history lesson on how brokerage commissions got structured the way That's awesome. Okay. So I, and I'm sorry for the sidetrack and I do want to get back to your story. That's okay. But I, I'm so glad I asked that question now. So you work for an industrial firm, but you're doing whatever you can get your hands on, right? I mean, you're doing mall kiosk deals, everything in between. Did you just naturally, even though you were at a predominantly industrial firm, you just naturally shifted to retail by your deals and your exposure and your interests? Is that fair to assume? I shifted to retail because I thought it was sexier. I thought it was cooler. In an industrial project, if you do a manufacturing facility or a uh, distribution center or warehouse, you're very likely to never go back to that place. You keep in touch with the owners, but there's nothing cool, in my opinion, at the time. Now, I actually think it's a very, very cool field. But when you put an electrical engineer into a flex space that he stores conduit in 2,500 square feet of warehouse space and behind his... 300 square foot office, it's not exactly something you take a girl to on Saturday night to show them what you did. But if you lease a space in Buckhead, Atlanta, which is one of our highest, coolest places in Atlanta, if you lease a restaurant and you go in and you know the owner, that's a cool thing. That's a girl getter. I didn't think industrial real estate was a girl getter. Okay. That's fair. So I morphed into retail. I did relatively well. About four years into my term at IJ Kaplan and Company, which would have been 1984, I met two people who had just started a brokerage company called the Shopping Center Group. They both came from a retailer background, the two founders of the company. Jeff Langfelder was vice president and director of real estate for Home Depot. And when Home Depot was a very, very small company, and Frank Bonanate was vice president and director of real estate for Six Flags Valley Corporation. He was doing the uh, theme parks and also what was called, I think, timeout game rooms in the malls. So I was their first or second employee. There were a couple of guys kind of hanging around. And when I first started, we were in an executive suite. Jeff Langfelder was actually still at Home Depot because the Home Depot job, it was such a small job being director of real estate for Home Depot that he could dabble into brokerage at the same time, which is what he did. So I actually started in the company before he started. So he was still at Home Depot. Wow. So there's got to be... And I ask everybody this. And what I love about you is that you're certainly not afraid to make fun of yourself. 
there has to be a story during your IJ Kaplan days or even early on in your shopping center days where you have a pretty embarrassing story on the job. Give us one. So you say there has to be a story, and I would say, oh my God, there's probably hundreds of stories. But one of them was in my first year, in my first year at the shopping center group, I showed a pretty well-known developer the wrong piece of property. And we literally, I mean, literally, I showed him the wrong piece of property. We were across the street from the property I was supposed to be showing him, and it was vacant land. And it was probably a 20-acre site because I think they eventually built about 150,000 square foot or 200,000 square foot center. But we were on the property. We began negotiation. We did all our research on the wrong side of the street. It was literally like pointing to a house, okay, and saying, how do you like this house? Showing them the inside of the house, getting them completely in love with the house, negotiating on it, doing all the transactions. And until they actually did a survey and found out that it was the wrong side of the street, they didn't know. And the reaction was? This was a scary guy that had a... He was driving a big Cadillac. I was in the back of the Cadillac. I was shaking in my shoes when I was showing him the property, and it probably caused me to show him the wrong. I still blame him for (laughs) for me showing him the wrong piece of property because I was so scared of him and so scared of the fact that there's a gun at my feet that I blame him. This wasn't my fault in retrospect. Now, this is 35, 37 years later. It now comes to me that it wasn't my fault. It was his fault. He scared me into this. See, now you owe me one because without you being on this show, you would have never realized that you showing him the wrong property was really not your fault. Oh, this is years of therapy. But if you could imagine, literally, we went back and looked at the wrong piece of property. (laughs) I mean, like several times. (laughs) So I have to ask, did the deal get done? No. Okay. As it probably should have, but... That's but we're awful. literally, it's like negotiating with someone who thinks you know what you're buying, but we're buying across the oh, street. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's pretty good. That is definitely up there as far as stories that I've been able to get <laughs> so far. So thank you for sharing that. No problem. Um, and the biggest lesson that you took away from the role in IJ Kaplan, I mean, what other than I like retail and it's sexy and I can take girls out by doing retail I mean, in all seriousness, there had to have been some good lessons that you took away from that first day. So the IJ Kaplan, this goes back, I've been with the Shopping Center Group now for, I'm in my 37th year, so it goes back a long time. Mr. Kaplan, who I really love dearly, passed away. He has no heirs in the business, so I can say this. He was the old school type of retail broker who taught you what not to do. He basically, or showed you what not to do. Honestly, We have gone so far and I've learned so much at my new job and then subsequently from so many great people that I've worked with and had the pleasure of learning from that you really have to do it the right way. It's not the, there are people that give brokerage a bad name because they take shortcuts and I learned not to take shortcuts as a result of taking shortcuts at the beginning of my career. And I can tell you as somebody who does business with your different offices across the country, that mentality goes all the way through from the junior broker who just started three months ago, all the way to the guy or lady who's running the office in whatever market it may be. If they have that TSCG email address, when you're dealing with them, they do it the right way. And that's a direct reflection of your leadership. So there's something to be said for that. Kudos to you. Thank you. So you're going at the shopping center group. You guys are focused on doing retail deals. I mean, it's in the name. 
So you're, you're exclusively focused on retail. You're riding high. You guys are obviously operating, even though there's only three of you or four of you, you're operating out of an executive suite in Atlanta. Obviously, the company's grown a little bit since then. So I'm curious to hear your take of the story, what happened to you individually, and sort of how it's gotten to where it is today. Well, the first thing, I'll start from the beginning. And the beginning is that if I were to talk about what the key to our success was, it was a combination of retailers exiting the enclosed mall environment and entering the open-air environment and the meteoric rise of the city of Atlanta. In the early 80s, the city of Atlanta had three of the top 10 fastest growing counties in the United States. It was absolutely on fire. So we were the fortunate beneficiaries of good luck in that Atlanta was growing so quickly. Most retailers pre-1980, most retailers or national promotional retailers were in the enclosed mall environment. And I say enclosed mall environment to differentiate between what is today referred to as regional malls back then were enclosed malls simply for the purpose of weatherproofing your shopping experience. So they didn't have the regionality that they do today. For instance, Lenox Square, when I was growing up, which is one of the preeminent malls in the Southeast United States and one of the best malls in the United States, was an open-air mall anchored by uh, two grocery stores. I don't know if people knew that. It was actually what you would call a strip center. It had two department stores, Davison's and Rich's, which were two southern department stores that became federated. Both of them became like by federated. Yeah. But at the time, it was an open-air grocery store anchored shopping center that became enclosed simply for the purpose of weatherproofing your shopping experience. So at the time, national promotional retailers were in Atlanta, but not the way they were in most of the northeastern cities in Florida and in California. When they started seeing Atlanta, when Atlanta came on the radar screen, they started coming to Atlanta and opening stores, and they were thrilled because Atlanta were, were shiny, happy people holding hands. And it was a great environment for them, and they, they did very, very well. When they reached their point of what they considered to be a point of maturity, which was having four or five stores in the market, they wondered if there was life outside of Atlanta. So they started getting curious about cities like Birmingham and Charlotte and Raleigh and Nashville. And for a time being, for a couple of years, we were now a handful of people in our brokerage company, maybe six, seven, eight people. And we would dabble, we would bounce in and out of those cities, acting like we knew those cities. And we would take the retailers, Bed Bath & Beyond, Sports Authority, Office Depot, people like that, into Birmingham and into Charlotte. And and we were acting as if we could take care of their needs in those cities. We pretty quickly came to the realization that you can't fake local market knowledge, that you have to live in the city, you have to walk the streets, you have to listen to the radio and watch TV and eat in the restaurants and talk to the waitresses and, and waiters and shop the stores and so on and so forth. And we started opening offices. And I apologize for cutting you off, but that's fine. There's something you mentioned, you indicated that you guys got lucky that Atlanta exploded. And without question, that was certainly, you guys were certainly a beneficiary, as you stated. But tell me, I can't imagine there was very many retail only focused brokerage companies in the mid 80s. I mean, this feels, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels pretty revolutionary that you guys were to the point to where you called your company focused on retail. I mean, you called your company the shopping center group. So I got to think that was revolutionary, but I wasn't there. And I'd be curious to get your take on it. Well, I actually think in retrospect, if I look back 37 years ago, I think calling ourselves the shopping center group was one of the dumbest things we ever did because it pigeonholes, you know, it's like today calling yourself the vape shop 
But all of a sudden, you look up and you listen to the news and, hey, wait a second, maybe we got the wrong name. It stuck. To answer your question, our competitors at the time were mostly retail developers that had internal real estate departments that also did brokerage. Okay. So there weren't many brokerage companies, pure brokerage companies, and especially companies that did tenant representation. And back when we first started, we were 100% tenant representation. So our competitors, again, were the internal functions of development companies that had a brokerage arm. Yeah, you're pitching, this is what we do. This is only what we do. We're obsessed with it. Okay, got it. So yes, that's actually a pretty insightful comment. Well, and I think there's a lesson to be taken away from our viewers is, and entrepreneurs are guilty of this too. Yeah, we do it all. We do everything because you're so afraid that you're going to fail and you're so afraid that you may miss out on an opportunity to drive revenue. But I, I sort of make the analogy with doctors. You've got a general doctor or surgeon or dentist or whatever, and they make good money. But if you find the orthopedic guy who focuses exclusively on ankles and does all the celebrities and professional football players and ankles, in theory, they, they often make a little bit more money because they have credibility of being specialized in exactly what they do. And I think that being able to tell that story that we're called the shopping center group because we do only retail, we do only retail tenant representation, everybody else just kind of does real estate. I think that speaks a lot to how you guys were able to develop the business and build it up in a relatively quick manner. And I also think there's an extremely important lesson to be had in the fact that you guys knew very quickly that you weren't local market experts. And it's important to know what you know, but it's also just as important, if not equally important, to know what you don't know. And the fact that you guys, rather than trying to puff out your chest and say, that's okay, we'll figure out Charlotte. That's okay, we'll figure out Miami and Tampa and all these other markets. You guys pivoted quickly and reacted and opened up those offices which I think is a true testament and something that you guys are reaping the benefits of 35, 37 years later. So kudos to you guys for doing that. And while we're on the topic of additional offices, tell me about the timing on that. Because I know you guys said that you could service the retailers in the different markets. When did you open your second office? Where was it? And talk to us about that timeline, if you don't mind. Well, let me refute a little of something that you said. We actually formally changed the name of our company from the Shopping Center Group to TSCG a couple of years ago. And the reason we did is because you're right. Historically, our company has been retail and our mantra. As a matter of fact, if you walk into our office, we have a big neon sign that says only retail, everything retail. Leasing signs with that slogan on there. So the reason we changed our name to the acronym TSCG was because we came to the realization that we used to say only retail, everything retail. And now a more apt way to describe our company is we represent users of space and people who own space that was originally conceived as retail. And the reason I say that is because we're as active in the medical field and the educational field. We're doing dialysis clinics, med first. We're doing learning centers. We're doing entertainment. We're big into restaurants. We're probably representing about 180 restaurants. So now all of our worlds, our collective world in the retail real estate and the formerly narrow field of retail real estate is now a pretty broad field where the occupants are coming from all over the place. They're office users, they're hospitality, they're mixed-use projects that are now combining all uses. So our world has changed. Sure. To answer your question, I have to look at the timeline about when the offices opened, but they were all of them occurred or almost all of them occurred in the Southeast in the early 80s. And since then, we've added uh, Southern California, 
We have three offices in New York, one office in Connecticut, Simsbury, Connecticut. Now we're from mid-Atlantic to southeast to Gulf states, northeast and southern California. We added them as their, I'm trying to think, the oldest office that we added was, well, at the same time Atlanta started, Miami started. Okay. Shortly after Miami was Tampa and Charlotte, Nashville, and Norfolk, Virginia. Those were among the handful of first offices. Why did Miami open so soon after the inception of the company or even simultaneously, as you say? Miami is an interesting one. Miami was an acquisition. Miami started, I mentioned that there were two founders of the Shopping Center Group, and those two founders of the Shopping Center Group were also founders of what was called the Florida Shopping Center Group, headquartered in Miami. And a founder in Miami actually started in 1984 or 1985, but about the same time we started, again, with our two founders of the company. Our two founders of the company divested themselves of their ownership in the 90s, about 20 years ago, or more than 20 years ago. And Florida was a wholly owned, separate company that we had nothing to do with. In the early 2000s, in about 2003, we acquired the Florida Shopping Center Group, which had offices in Miami, Orlando, Tampa, and Jacksonville. Oh, so that was a big acquisition then. I didn't realize that. It was actually a very big acquisition. Sure. So I'm not to assume anything, but I don't think it was you given your youth in the business. Who had the vision to say, hey, we need to open? Who had that realization like, hey, we need to open offices in these other Southeastern markets and do it quickly in order to take advantage of the opportunity to serve these retailers and their growth? I like to say any good move in our history was done by me solely with no support and no advice and no consultation, but I'd be completely wrong. (laughs) Honestly, I... Don't know. I would say each office was probably a different story. Okay. And I would say that what prompted us opening offices was a combination of what I already said was we didn't want to fake local market knowledge, but it also happened to coincide with our ability to find people that were comparable to us in terms of culture, mindset, the way they address the customer in a uh, service versus sales attitude. Mm-hmm. So Again, like I said, that our success was a combination of the meteoric rise of Atlanta and retailers exiting the enclosed mall environment to the open air environment. I would also say that we had similar. The reason why we were able to expand is because we found people culturally aligned at a time that there was retailer interest in those cities. Who were some of those people? Who were some of those patriarchs in the different cities? Well, interestingly, we opened and closed Nashville and Charlotte, but we opened and closed and then reopened. So those were original people in various places. But in those cases, it happened to be that the people we opened the office with moved. And so we closed the office because we no longer had people. We reopened the Carolinas with a a guy named Brian Simon, who most recently, he was the founder of the Carolina Shopping Center Group. I mean, the Shopping Center Group of the Carolinas. And for the past 15 or 20 years, he's been the Costco development manager for Asia. Interestingly enough, we opened Tennessee with a guy named Bill Vaughn and John Forster. Bill Vaughn retired. John Forster is still around. We opened Virginia with Deborah Ramey, who is still around. In Miami, um, we had mentioned the Florida Shopping Center Group as an acquisition. It was really more characterized as a merger because it was a stock-for-stock transaction. That's really a merger rather than acquisition. But the gentleman who was running Florida retired. And one of the reasons why we were able to accomplish the merger was he retired. 
a guy named Mark Milgram, who's still a very visible guy in the industry. I know David, sure. Yeah. New York was an acquisition, or you would call it a merger, I guess, because it was a stock for stock swap. We merged with a company called Northwest Atlantic Real Estate Services, which was originally an arm of Costco. And then they became uh, one of the top brokerage companies in Manhattan. And since we acquired them or merged with them in Manhattan, we've opened an office in White Plains in Westchester County and uh, Paramus. And besides that, there were typically acquisitions of teams that developed offices. So you guys had this collective vision to do these things and open up offices and service the retailers. And at this point, my assumption in the story at this point is that it catches on like wildfire. Anytime a new retailer wants to come to Charlotte, you know, they're wondering who to go to. You guys have a referral system in place. You guys have clearly demonstrated to the retailers that are doing the deals. They're all friends with each other. Hey, whenever you're ready to come to Atlanta, you got to call David or whoever at the shopping center group at the time. I assume that's what happens. It takes off like wildfire and it kind of gets us to where we are today in a macro perspective. Is that fair to assume? It's fair to assume... But as you know, in retail, you have to interview for every opportunity. So it wasn't just a given that if we were representing Bed Bath & Beyond in Georgia, that we would obviously get the account in Alabama, North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, and so on and so forth. So I would say that it was, yes, we caught on like wildfire. But again, I'm going to go back to the meteoric rise of Atlanta, followed by the meteoric rise of these southeastern cities. Because they grew so quickly and came onto the scene so quickly, I would say that our good fortune was the fact that we were in place. You know, they say that success is when luck meets preparation. And I would agree with that because we were prepared, we were in place, we developed the local market expertise by acquiring people that had local market knowledge and were from those cities. And we were ready when they were ready. So I would say that gave us a chance to be quickly considered among the first people who were interviewing for these opportunities. Got it. So that helps. But clearly that you guys had to earn everybody your stripes is, is an important component to it too. And a lot of the guys who were working these accounts or what have you obviously produced because... And you knew that they would. You were willing to take that bet that they would because they culturally fit with you guys. So what were you doing as an individual? I mean, And I know this is your personality. You're we, we, we... You're not me, me, me. And I get that. I love that about you. But tell me, what were you as an individual doing? I mean, you walk into work one day and you're like, hey, I got a deal done. And then your compatriots are like, yeah, we just opened another office. Like, are you deal making day to day and doing transactions to make money for both yourself and the organization? Are you playing a role in, and figuring out who should be hired and opening these offices across the South? I mean, where's your time spent? Well, a lot of these offices opened, like I said, in the 80s and 90s. And I was a full-time broker who was running the company along with Frank Bonanate, who also was a full-time broker. So what we were doing is I I think we were pretty good at the acquisition part, the M&A part, but it was a simpler time. Transactions to acquire or to merge operations into our operation was a little bit easier than it is today just because things have become more complicated. So we were able to be brokers. I was a broker and full-time broker dabbling in opening offices until the mid-2000s. I think the last brokerage deal I did was probably around 2005, about 15 years ago. And at that time, my partner, Frank Bonanate, had left. My partner, Sam Latone, had joined. And Sam and I were co-CEOs running the company. And we both came to the conclusion that the company was getting 
big enough that it required our full-time attention. Got it. I have to imagine that stretch of 10, 20 years, especially when the acquisitions and the, I mean, this had to have required some serious work. You can't imagine the amount of alcohol it took. (laughs) And hours. Again, I love this about you, but I think it's important to articulate to the audience too. Like, I'm sure these were not 30 and 40 hour weeks. I'm sure each job required 30 or 40 hour weeks, meaning full-time broker David was putting in at least the amount of time necessary to be successful and to service the client, which is the most important adage I know as you would feel as a broker. And then there's, let's call them development officer to to grow the platform and have offices in all these different markets across the Eastern half of the country. That's a full-time job too. So you're basically doing two full-time jobs at once. Am I missing anything? I'm sure that took an extreme... You've heard this before, but nobody on their deathbed says that they wish they spent more time in the office. So I've never tried to be one of these that that shows off about how much I work. But I worked hard and I worked a lot of hours. But I would tell you that I feel as if I worked smart. For instance, one of the things that I would tell our younger brokers is when you're out on Saturday night and you go to a restaurant, you have a couple of scotches and you eat dinner and you're having a wonderful night. On the way home, drive by a shopping center that you list or drive by a retailer that you represent. And I hate to give away secrets, but I would look for problems. I would look for an issue that I could report into the retailer. Like for instance, I've used Bed Bath & Beyond before because they're one of my oldest clients, but I would call Bed Bath & Beyond on Saturday night at 11.30, call them in the office, leave a message on their voicemail, and it would be something along the lines of, I know you're not in your office, but it's 11.30 on Saturday night. And I just want you to know the E is out on your sign in the word bed. And obviously, you're not going to hear this until Monday morning, but I just wanted you to know. And I wanted to give them the impression that I was constantly 24-7 thinking about them because I was. And you can use the tricks of the trade. Tricks of the trade are just called best practices. And best practices are constantly thinking about it. For instance, I'm talking about going to a restaurant. On Saturday night, I would, when I was a young married guy, we would talk to the server. Who comes in here? How do you like it? How's business? How many turns do you guys do? How busy are you guys at nine o'clock? What's your first uh, seating? Things like that. Because I don't call that working. I call that being a student of the game. And I call that just honing my skills. So Yeah, I worked hard and I worked long hours, but I also partied. I also had a lot of fun along the way. And again, I'm not going to show off on my deathbed or complain that I didn't spend enough time at the office. Right. I hear you on that. So this is going to be a tough question for me to ask. I think you have weaknesses. I presume you do. I don't know what they are yet. What are they and how do you navigate them in the work environment? Well, I can't break 80 in golf. (laughs) And I don't know why I can't, but I can't. I'll be honest with you. I have so many weaknesses that they so outnumber my strengths and I've somehow or another gotten away with it. And I mean that 100% true. I chose journalism in college because I like journalism, but also because I didn't want to take math courses and I didn't want to take foreign language. So I actually looked over the curriculum. So I completely avoided business classes. And I can tell you that It took me way too long to understand basic fundamentals of accounting, insurance, and so many things that are so finance that are so important. And now I go back and I preach 
listen in school, take as many classes as you can, actually learn these things instead of faking them. And I can tell you, I faked it for a long time. I really did. And I'm not just being humble or I faked it. (laughs) One thing people cannot call you is a liar. That honesty honesty is definitely one of your strong suits, which which I certainly appreciate. So you've had so much exposure right, to all these different offices and all these different deals in your deal-making that you were doing from mid early 1980s, I should say, including the Kaplan days, all the way to the mid-2000s. What was the craziest deal you ever worked on? Huh. Craziest deal? Uh, wow. I will make this even more complicated. I will throw in a merger and acquisition of an office if that tickles your fancy as well. So I will give you either transactional, like day-to-day leasing or whatever it was that was crazy or taking on another office. I'll leave that up to you. Well, I can tell you opening another office is there's nothing that comes close. If you're working in the United States, there's nothing that comes close in terms of complexity, craziness, and in some case, absurdity than opening an office in New York. And I say that because it truly is a different place to do business in every way, shape, and form. And by the way, I love my partners in New York. I love the transaction. It was what I would call a very amicable transaction. We're great friends. We talk all the time. And I so value our association in New York. But I would say that it is so different just because we're seeing this now with the COVID-19 and what's happening in the city. You're dealing with an urban mass of people that creates its own subset of issues that are complex and that are, that are totally different. I would say the craziest deal was probably a sale that I didn't make. I'm going to give you two. Perfect. A sale that I didn't make where I already told you about the fact that I almost sold someone the wrong piece of property. And that would have been the craziest. That was the embarrassing story. Crazy is what I'm looking for. Good, bad, and different. Let's see. I can't wait to hear this. Yeah, one of them was basically we're at the closing table on a sale of a piece of property and my check is sitting there. So at the time, there was no automatic transfer, instant deposit or whatever they call that electronic transfer. Everything was done by check. And I'm looking at this check and I wanted this check so badly and we knew we were going to close. And we are signing papers. The seller is signing, the buyer is signing, and the lawyer is happy and they're, and they're using his pen and all this kind of stuff. And as they're probably three-fourths of the way through, the buyer says to the seller something like, you know, I thought that was crazy where that sewer was located on that survey. Not that it's going to change the deal, but it was so crazy where that sewer. And he goes, what survey? And he goes, the survey that you gave us. And he says, oh, you weren't operating on that survey, were you? He says, I was just showing you that. That was part of our package, but that's not the real survey. Pens go flying, papers get torn up, and I'm going, are you kidding me? So that happened. I got to ask, I wouldn't be doing our listeners a favor if I didn't ask, how big was the check? You don't have to use numbers if you don't want, but was this a monumental check? Was this like a routine check, but it butters my bread? This goes back a long time. This goes back almost 40 years. And my guess is the check was probably two or $3,000. Oh, so a ton of money then at that time. And I would say that was life-changing. Okay. Not life-changing. I would say it was a big deal. Sure. Yeah. Did it happen? No, it didn't. Oh, man. No, it didn't. That's about as far as I've ever heard of a deal getting killed. I'm going to give you another one. We were doing a CVS. 
and CVS drugstore. And we were, it was on a piece of property that had three curb cuts because it was on a triangular piece of property that had a back street, a front street, and a side street. And it had three curb cuts. We went to the city meeting to show the site plan and because we had to get a variance. And we were getting a variance for closing. We were going to close a curb cut, close down a curb cut. And we had to get a variance. I forgot the other reason. I think it might have been the blue ticket. If you remember, Blockbuster had a ticket and that was their sign. And so I think it exceeded this. And that was a requirement for a Blockbuster site is it had to have that yellow theater ticket sign. So we go to the city council and we knew that they, and I'm sorry, we were doing a CVS. that We were going to put a Blockbuster onto it. It was a double deal. Got it. So we went to the city council and we knew that the city council had a problem with the curb cut. They wanted the curb cut. We knew that they had a problem with Blockbuster Video because they thought that Blockbuster Video was pornography, that they were selling pornography, but they wanted a CVS. And we were very, very smug. We had all our drawings and we knew we were going to nail it because we no longer needed to put Blockbuster Video there. We no longer needed to close the curb cut. And I forgot. So in other words, we were giving them everything that they wanted. Right. So we came in and we said, guys, before you start yelling about pornography, guess what? We've answered every one of your concerns. And after we do it, we thought, we thought everybody was going to stand up and cheer. And after we told them that we were going to do everything that they wanted, for the next 30 minutes, they continued to say, and furthermore, we don't want pornography. And we're looking at each other like, no, we're not going to do the Blockbuster. And then the next person said, we don't want Blockbuster in our neighborhood. And we're going, y'all are not hearing us. We're not doing Blockbuster. And they go, and we want that curb cut. And we said, we're not closing it. And we got turned down. That's it? And it didn't listen? <laughs> we got turned down. No, just died. Just like that. Just like that. Oh, my gosh. That's nuts. For protection of that municipality, I will not ask where that was. But I feel your frustration all these years later. It's terrible. Smyrna, Georgia. Oh, okay then. (laughs) For all the fine folks in Smyrna, you missed a a great opportunity to have a thriving retailer there. Yep. So a lot of people work at the shopping center. How many teammates do you guys have there now? So we have 250 people in 20 offices. They are fortunate, and I know you, and I know you well enough to know that no one is too important or unimportant enough for you. you. You make time for everybody, and I appreciate that. Those 250 people have the benefit of being able to get your wisdom, either directly or indirectly. But there's a lot more than that in our industry. And so what I would ask you, especially for the people who are five years or less in the business, what advice do you have for them as it relates to how you've been... I know you would be lost to say it, so I'll say it for you. You've had an overwhelmingly successful career to this point. And everybody who listens to the show is trying to improve themselves and wants to become you in some way, shape, or form, whether it's with a developer or retail or whatever, that's a magician. They all want to become successful. Like For the people who are less than five years in or even just getting going like I am, like I got a ton of time left in this business, what advice do you have? I would say mean what you say and say what you mean. Avoid superlatives. And I mean that. I think that younger people have a tendency, and I'm not going to throw in the words millennials or anything like that, but I think that we're in an age of exaggeration. If we go on a Saturday night, if you're, I am going to generalize and say younger people because we didn't actually use these words back then, but dinner either sucks 
or it was awesome. And I find that to be offensive. And the reason why I find it to be offensive is because we're responsible for our words. And especially in light of things like Yelp and platforms where your words actually influence people. And we now have the term influencers for that very reason, that people are making decisions about where to eat based on your review. And I think people are too quick to either say it's the best or the worst instead of saying it's accurate. Like, for instance, if you're in real estate and you're describing a very busy intersection, people have a tendency to say there's a ton of traffic there or there's an unbelievable amount of traffic or, oh my God, are you kidding me? Instead of what the real answer is, according to the Department of Transportation, there's 46,000 cars a day. Now, that's the answer. And I think that if you train yourself to give real answers with real words and real things that people can actually hang their hat on, you're doing yourself and your clients a much better service. And at the end of the day, you're liable for your words. You're responsible for your words and you're actually affecting people's lives with your words. So that's one thing that I would say. The second thing that I would say is be interesting. And I know that sounds like a trite comment, but when you're in the car with clients, yes, you need to know real estate. Yes, you need to know the details of the building, the transaction, all the uh, nuances of the property or the building, whatever it happens to be. But you also need to understand movie history and sports. And you need to be someone that someone likes. People shop and people use the services of people they like. And they like people that are fun to be around and that are interesting. And I think that you're a better service provider if you're interesting. So I encourage everybody to read. When you read the newspaper, if you're reading the Wall Street Journal, if you know the Wall Street Journal, the left side is the what's news thing. And it's got a little snippet on every major story that they've got in the uh, newspaper. I would encourage everybody to read a story about something they have absolutely no interest in. It could be botany. It could be biology. It could be about flowers or history or anything, it makes you a better person. It makes you a more worldly person. And at the end of the day, it's a good business practice. Excellent advice. Perfect segue to my next question. Certainly, you keep up with reading the news. You read books, are you a reader? And if so, what's one book that's changed your life? Because I know a podcast hasn't changed your life yet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've already told you about my academic background, and I'm in the process of finishing taken me about probably four or five months, but I'm almost finished with a cat in the hat. And I still can't imagine that he is Sam and yet Sam he is. So things like that just really blow me away because of the depth of just creativity and insight. I haven't read in a long time. And we're so inundated with trade magazines and with electronic things that I feel like I'm so far behind in keeping up with that I used to be an avid reader. And I just can't anymore. I fly a lot. I travel a lot. And so that was the time that I read was on a plane, but now you've got Wi-Fi, so you're working. Now that you've got Wi-Fi, it's almost impossible to create free time to read, in my mind. Sure, I get that. Tell me about Chainlinks. What's the deal there? Chainlinks is a great organization. It was started in 1978 by seven people. And it was people, not companies. And interestingly, I mentioned the two founders of our company. One of the founders was a guy named Jeff Langfelder. And he was one of seven people that started Chainlinks in 1978. Chainlinks started at a time that retailers were exiting the enclosed mall environment. And when you exit the enclosed mall environment, you lose the 
benefit of following the herd. And what I mean by following the herd is that you really didn't need to do that much thinking. I'm not putting the industry down at the time, but I'm saying that at the time, you would say if Bloomingdale's, Macy's, Penny's, and Sears are here, and they're going to build this barbell in between, and every national retailer is going to be there, what more do I need to do? I really don't need demographics. I don't need traffic counts. The signage is whatever the mall will allow. The parking is whatever the mall will allow. And the anchors will bring in the traffic and create the opportunity. When they exit the enclosed mall environment and the security of the enclosed mall environment, go into the open air environment, all of a sudden they need to know going home side of the street, going to work side of the street. They need to know curb cuts, Department of Transportation. Is there a median that allows for a left turn? Is there a traffic light? Is that median going to be closed in and moved? Is the traffic light going to be moved? Where are my competitors? But wait a second, what if they move? What are the anchors of these tenants? But what if they move? And they needed advisors. So these seven people who were geographically dispersed throughout the United States and were good friends, and most of whom had come from retail backgrounds, decided to start this organization for the sharing of information, resources, and relationships. Its timing was perfect. I go back to 1984. So as a matter of fact, today, I'm 99% sure I'm the oldest, not the oldest in terms of age, but the longest tenured member of Chainlinks. There's about 700 people in Chainlinks, and I think I'm the longest tenured. How did that seven-person brain trust that got it going, it's no secret, the shopping center group, or TSCG now, was and is and still and probably will be for a very long time an integral part of the Chainlinks process. How were you exposed and seeing it grow over the years? Well, at the time, it was a small group of people. You mean Chainlinks? Correct. correct? Yeah, again, it was a small group of people. When I joined in 1984, Chainlinks was probably 20 people. And it was really a fraternity of people that loved each other and shared war stories and shared experiences like that. Since then, it's morphed and Chainlinks is represented in every major market in the United States. There are 65 offices, 750 brokers. There are differentiators of Chainlinks that I think differentiate Chainlinks from the other global companies. The CBs and the JLLs are multi-discipline companies, typically with a much smaller retail presence. Chainlinks is about retail. Right. It's a retail network. So you had mentioned this before, the focus of Chainlinks is retail as opposed to retail representing 5% of their business, like it is in most of the global companies. We have remained friends. When If I tell people why Chainlinks, one of the things, in addition to the fact that I think they are the best service provider in each of these markets, as proven by the fact that they have to reapply every two years. Oh, every I didn't member, know that. Yeah, every member company of Chainlinks has to reapply and get reapproved. And if they can't prove that they're the most effective service provider in that market, they lose it. Who judges that? Chainlinks has what's called a membership committee. Yep. And it revolves, but it's typically coming from various geographies throughout the United States. And it is an exhaustive approach that you have to go through. I mean, exhaustive effort that you have to go through on the application. Uh-huh. You have to be recommended by retailers, landlords. You really have to prove your worth. And there have been a lot of changes in chain links. Wow. Did not know that. So, and I know you were an integral part of the development of it. I know you didn't, you weren't a founding father, if you will, but you've certainly played a role in it over the years, to put it lightly. And you've obviously had an enormous role in what you're doing today as co-CEO of TSCG. 
So if you were to retire tomorrow and never work another day in your life, I'm overwhelmingly convinced with what you've been able to accomplish already that ICSC would do a full-blown cover story about <laughs> leaving. And it would be well-known throughout. Everybody would know that you would left. It would be kind of big breaking news. With that said, that day will come at some point. Inevitably, we all die, right? I'm not anticipating that day is going to be anytime soon that you exit the business. And that's for you and you only to decide. But my question for you is, when that day does come, what do you want your legacy to be like in this business? That's one of those cocky questions because obviously you would never say, I want my legacy to be that I sucked as a broker. Honestly, I think I would... I've been watching the Michael Jordan story. And I guess the last dance, and I think everybody's been watching it. And one of the things, uh, they asked him the question, and it was, and I'm paraphrasing, but they asked him in a different way, because if you are watching The Last Dance, uh, Michael Jordan isn't always portrayed as the most likable person in the world. And there were detractors. There were people that, that thought that he was very standoffish, that he was uh, a showboat. There were a number of different ways that you could describe the way he is. But I think he made the comment that he wants to be remembered as someone that made everybody around him better. And if I were to look back, I would say that that's what I would like to be. I think I'd like to be known more as a point guard than an outside shooter or the the highest scorer and the assist guy. And yeah, I think I would like to be remembered as someone that made people better as a result of me being there. There's zero doubt in my mind based on my limited exposure with you and based on what everybody that I've ever talked to about you said that that will no doubt be amongst the top things that people think about if and when you decide to get out of this business one day. I appreciate it. And with that being said, I can't thank you enough for spending the time with me. It is truly a service that we're collectively providing for everybody in the industry to be able to have some exposure to your story. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do it and share the insight that you've been able to do with me today. So again, thank you, thank you. That's all I can say. It's so overwhelmingly appreciated. You have no idea. Always great to spend time with you. Thanks for listening to Limitless, How to Crush It in Commercial Real Estate. I hope you were able to extract one piece of value out of today's episode. That's my only goal. If you did, in fact, get some value out of it, Let me know via LinkedIn, Instagram, or through a review wherever you get your podcasts. 